Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Enterprise Sales Development Podcast, brought to you by Science Technologies. We interview outbound leaders at fast growth businesses to learn their secrets and bring you actionable insights. Thanks for joining us this week. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Enterprise Sales Development. I'm Eric Quanstrom, CMO at Science. And I'm Harry Evans, Director of Craft and Strategy at Science. Eric, it was awesome talking to Kevin Avery this week. Yeah, it was. For those who don't know who Kevin Avery is, here's a little bit of his background. It's, it's somewhat impressive. Kevin graduated from Harvard, then went to AT&T, Spanlink, Cisco, SBI, Here Technologies, Forrester, and back to SBI again today. Uh, we were just in awe about it. Yeah, a guy that might know a little something about sales and sales development had some amazing insights to share with us. Yeah, he had some great ones. And what's really interesting, something that you pointed out after the call was, it seemed like the more people know, the less it takes them to explain. You know, he had great short little comments that really stood out and had had great points to make. In particular, what stood out on my end was, First of all, talking about comp and quota maybe not necessarily being the right strategy for SDRs in a startup. And also, just love the quote that being an SDR is not cold fusion. You don't need to overthink it so much. No, it's not. And, and you know, he riffs on that with some other great themes and, and really kind of like thoughtful takes on, you know, kind of the, the craft of SDRhood, if you will, even likening, um, you know, kind of SDRs to being part of a guild mentality, which could serve, you know, the entire profession very well. So you're going to definitely want to check these out. It's the easiest listen in the world because we covered some great topics and you'll just see, frankly, how brilliant Kevin is throughout the interview. Looking forward to it. Welcome back, everyone, to the Enterprise Sales Development Podcast. We're here today with Kevin Avery. And Kevin, thank you so much for joining us. Really excited to have you. My pleasure. I'm looking forward to the discussion. Well, we've got a lot of hot topics we wanted to cover, but one in particular that really got Eric in my eye, you know, we'll tell the listeners that Kevin was great. He sent us a whole list of different topics that, that we can talk about and got our brains turning. We had to have a conversation before even having the conversation about all these different cool topics. So one of them that really got our eye that we wanted to start with was why aren't there better sales development reps anymore? Where are all the good reps? <laughs> yeah, the most convenient thing for for sales and marketing leaders to do is blame the reps. What you arm your reps with, they're going to do their best with. So garbage in, garbage out. So when you say that, it sounds like what you're saying is basically that we're not empowering reps well enough to even be able to tell if they're good or not. We're basically just having them turn through processes that aren't working. So how do you go about fixing that? Where do you start? Yeah, that's a good question. I think the idea is that your strategy has to then direct the execution. And so what you get is a lot of problems with your strategy that you haven't worked out. And so you've got, you know, just pesky little problems like you don't really have good mark product market fit or you don't know. You don't really have good targeting intel. So you don't know if you're in the right accounts or and then on the right personas. You don't, you haven't really mastered the problem you purportedly solve. All those little tiny niggling things. Um, and then you're going to blame your SDRs because they suck. Really? Well, I think one of the other ones that, that sticks out like a sore thumb, and we see it because we, we just have so many clients in so many different industries. The differentiation question really goes right to the heart of, you know, luck would have it that that reality is that, I don't know, turns out you're not the only software development firm in, in the world. <laughs> turns out you're not the only lead generation company out on the street. The ability to kind of 
crisply and succinctly talk about what it is you do best or how you best serve clients is a is a high art and and oftentimes really lacking, isn't it? It is. And the and the over-rotation on what our product is and what its features are, and the complete lack of focus on the problem that we solve. How does it help you make or save money? All the things that I mean, ultimately, even though we often don't understand the alchemy, in the end, when somebody buys something, whether it's mathematical or otherwise, they're figuring out how it makes or saves them money and what the risk is that the, of that not happening to a sufficient extent. So, you know, I think the 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 dictum for enterprises should be go be a master in the problem and spend a whole lot more time arming your your SDRs and your sales reps if they're prospecting with the idea of here's the market problem, here's the dimensions of the problem, here's the way that you can size that problem. Here's the various approaches, and here's the set of capabilities required to solve the problem. You notice we haven't even talked about product yet. And voila, at the end, we happen to have designed this product specifically with all of those insights built in. Well, as someone who you know was a, an analyst for Forrester, a principal at SBI, a consultant of the highest order, you know, and, and now you're back at SBI, why do we skip steps? You know, I think partially it's it's just everybody's in a rush for results. But I think the other thing in, in SDR world, and, and I know you guys know this, but the funny thing is SDR isn't difficult. It's not cold fusion. On the other hand, it is one of the many things where how you do something matters a hell of a lot more than just than just that you do it. And so it really takes a process orientation and discipline. And in fact, one of the things we tell clients is you should have a charter for this because all really complex operations should have a charter because it aligns the stakeholders and it says what you do and you don't do and what the expectations of the various players are and all of those gobbledygook things that, you know, you, you'll also... You know, we could also talk about, you know, where should SDR live in marketing or sales? And the answer is it doesn't matter if you do it right. You know, so I think that the, the basic answer is not having the discipline to create a strategy by design and have execution flow out of it and dealing with the, the inherent complexity of SDR. And if you don't, then you'll get sloppy execution. You won't have the right people doing the right things. You know, you'll you'll have role corruption, all, all the things that come out of bad process engineering. You know, you talk about essentially being an expert in your space, understanding the pain and the problem. And, and the way you describe it, it, it reminds me of an analogy that we use to train at, at science, which I'm sure you've heard before, the doctor analogy. You know, you the modern sales process is often you walk into a doctor's appointment, a doctor's office and someone goes, here's all my credentials on the wall. Here's all the different illnesses that I've treated. I've handled knees and elbows. In the very end, they go, by the way, what hurts? And you're like, well, that didn't help me at all. <laughs> and that's, that feels what, like what sales is. You're saying be a doctor, actually diagnose the problem, make a prescription. Doctors take a long time to train. And so what I'm wondering is, what are your thoughts on ramp? How long should someone be trained in a space like that before they're released into the wild, knowing that you believe in having a strong level of expertise? Yeah, you know, I think that the idea is they should be trained enough. Um, <laughs> what does that mean? A lot of it also means um, how much help and coaching are you going to be able to give them? Because if you think about training... The, the university paradigm is is plenty good for knowledge transfer, but in terms of how to do things, 
sales and SDR, they're actually much more, I think, tuned to the guild mentality. The, the plumber, you know, the, the electrician, the, the apprentice journeyman master sort of thing. And depending on the complexity of the challenge for an SDR, they will need more or less knowledge transfer each you can do by training and observation, learn, learn by observing and progressively by doing and coaching. And, you know, I think putting them in the seat with the right amount of help to let them master your approach tactics, that really much depends on how complex the proposition is. And then probably also how high level the person is. So therefore, how much how much wiggle room you have on on imprecise or imperfect execution? Well, I love that the guild mentality. You know, it is maybe a renaissance in our industry, isn't it? That we should be focused on. Well, it's. I mean, people people learn by doing. And then the other thing is that sales and SDR they're they're risk laden propositions. And if you think about successful and sensible people, people don't just throw themselves into risks risk situations just for the hell of it. If you're trying with, with a new sales methodology or a new SDR methodology to get people to do things differently and they've been successful with, with something else, even in the face of its success waning, they will cling to that because of comfort level. And successful salespeople, and I would assume SDRs would be the same, you don't will not step out of their comfort zone and do something new until you can show them that it's plausibly likely to succeed and you can take most of the risk out of it for them. Yeah, it seems like risk is the biggest obstacle to change. You know, people see the value, but I think change is often pitched with, look at all this, all the great things we could have in the future. Nobody wants to take the risk to get there and deal with the change to get there. That's a really good shout out. You know, when you look at that kind of change, you know, one of the things we talked about before we hopped onto this podcast was all of the different folks who are just starting to start up or stand up an organization, or maybe even have recently done so, but are learning all the obstacles that go into enterprise sales development specifically. You've had a heck of a background, a heck of a set of experiences seeing different companies do that. What are the biggest either mistakes that you've seen or patterns you've noticed that are from people that are in that phase? The number one thing is people underestimate the degree of difficulty. Uh, and it's not difficulty so much as it's complexity because I mean, setting up an SDR organization isn't hard. It's not cold fusion. You know, it's the kind of thing that you have to be methodical and you have to be disciplined. You actually have to understand what best practice is you have to have the right division of labor. You have to not roll corrupt things. You probably should make sure that you understand who's writing your content, who's writing your email subject lines. Are we asking SDRs to do that? Or are we actually doing that with you know, sort of more of an engine room concept where experts are doing that and then feeding it to the executors? The, the other thing you see is that people don't really understand what good looks like. And so it's like, well, I got to get people on the phones. Well, so you, you launch this thing pardon my French, but half-assed, and you, you get bad results and you wonder why. I mean, the, the complexity of, a, of an excellently structured approach sequence to a, to a prospect is not trivial. And most organizations just really aren't equipped with the right content, the right um, sequence building, the right modalities that they're, they're ready to use. And then again, we, as we talked before, they don't understand the problem deeply enough and to, to really get out there and talk to the client about what they care about, which is themselves and their problems. They don't care about us and our brand and our experience and whatever, until unless we can connect it to an understanding of their problems. Well, and at the risk of sounding totally self-serving, given that we 
do provide outsourced SDR services here at Science. You you have a bit of a framework and and in, dare I even say an enlightened view on when to outsource, when to pull in house, how to move through hybrid models. Would you mind sharing that with with our listeners? Yeah, I can tell you that if I went back into an enterprise role where I've spent most of my career and I needed to to stand up an SDR operation, the first thing I would ask myself is core versus context. Jeffrey Moore. Okay, so core is that which drives differentiation. Context is everything else. Do I want to do this myself? Do I need to do this myself? Or can I outsource it or outtask it? Assuming that somebody's really good at this. The second thing I'd ask is time to value. So what are the implications of how much it takes, how much heavy lifting it takes to get one of these operations stood up? And in near 100% of the time, if I were starting something from scratch, whatever I decided about my how ultimately important it was for us to own and run this ourselves, I would start with a top-class outsourcer because I can get in the market faster with people who do this for a living. And I'm probably going to glean some insights out of this experience with a science, for instance, that when I go to ingest this thing, either in a hybrid mode for the variety of reasons you might go hybrid, or I do, I, you know, I take it over completely and fire you guys. You have to go look for somebody else. You know, I, I probably am ahead of the game, not only because we've built some momentum, but because you've already helped us learn. You know, that, that point you made about time to value, I think is one of the things people don't consider. You know, when you're starting up a new organization, you think, okay, if we get people in place, we'll get this many meetings, they'll convert. But I mean, we've learned firsthand at science day one, you don't pick up the phone, knock it out of the park and just land three meetings as a caller. You know, you don't send out 15 emails, land 10 meetings and go on vacation. It's not really how it works. It takes time to dial in and A-B test and figure out what's working. And I think a lot of these people starting up organizations, they don't think about the the actual time before things are are up and running. Uh, It's something that we push hard for is segmenting into kind of almost two phases. One of finding signal and, and figuring out what's working and then two of scaling growth. So, Let's say I'm a I, I own a company and I'm, I'm building my sales org. We're starting to make company or we're starting to make sales. Now I'm at that place where I know I want to have my own internal team. I read Predictable Revenue, so I know I know the way to do it. And uh, I know I want to have my own internal SDR team, and I want to have separate AEs and everything else. But now I'm listening to this podcast and I'm hearing Kevin Avery tell me that maybe I should test it out first, get data. How do I separate those phases? How do I figure out when it's going to make sense to bring on someone or not? And then when it's going to make sense to look at what they've done and then build my own team? Like, how do I go from zero to I've got this beautiful model built out? Well, if you, you start with how well, how well do we understand our market? All of the strategy inputs that need to in, be infused into your prospecting strategy, you know, how much, how much gap do you have? Because if you start out with an outsourcer, the outsourcer can even help you fill those gaps if they're good. So if you have lousy account segmentation or you don't have it at all, somebody like science is going to do a poor man's version of that in a hurry, which is going to be directionally correct. And it's, you know, it's just keep improving your position on the chessboard. The rest of it then is just, you know, can I marshal the budget? Can I, can I uh, understand what it's really going to take? Can I take the time to make sure that what, what we stand up is going to be properly funded and then properly executed? And I'm going to be able to hire the right people or move the right people around internally or whatever. And all this time, the outsourcer, how long does it take you guys to, st- to stand up something on an average basis? Um, right around 10 days. 
and it's going to take me six months. I mean, it, you know, even if I really could could miraculously shed all the rest of the day jobs that the, that the real people have and say, okay, go stand up an SDR organization and stand it up at least above average to begin with, I think it's going to take six months. It's for sure going to take 90 to 120 days. And I think, frankly, for most companies, that's a pipe dream getting something that up that fast. Minimum. And you know, the other thing that, that goes with the territory is <laughs> you don't know what you don't know. And oftentimes those mistakes can prove, dare I even say fatal, if you're rolling your own, building it in-house or scaling it in-house, right? Like if you're building on a shaky foundation, maybe you actually did have a few really good first hires. Yeah. But the shelf life of SDRs is what, 14 months in the role? Well, that gets us to a whole different conversation because one of the other sort of mistakes I see all the time is the blind assumption that an SDR is an entry-level job. And the other sort of kissing cousin bad assumption is that there is a direct magical line between an SDR and some sort of full cycle sales rep role. It's a plausible path, but it's not if A, then B. And, you know, back to the thing about the SDRs. Why do you deploy? How do we know it's right to deploy a, uh, a, a, a quote-unquote cheap person? I mean, they're already going to be less expensive as full-time professional prospectors. They do it for a living. They're, almost no matter whom you hire, they're going to be cheaper than your full-cycle sales reps. So why are you buying price and not value? Why don't you figure out what skill sets that your, your, that your prospects need and will value, not only in your reps, but also in your SDRs? And then buy the right people and deploy the right people. And if you're doing this right in a lot of businesses where it's not just high velocity, very transactional, I mean, you all of a sudden have, just like you have career salespeople, why couldn't you have career SDRs? So again, it's a lot of these sort of fallacies that are out there that you know you end up with common prog- common practice instead of best practice and regression to the mean of mediocrity. And it's and there's a million of these little things where they're just really unconsidered. Do you think one of the issues, if you will, or ways that this goes all sideways, is that we we always want to attach numbers to outcomes, right? So I'm I'm thinking specifically around an SDR's output is going to be meetings, and ultimately you can get okay, here's what I'm paying either an agency like Science or my SDR team and management and overhead. Here's a CAC associated with every meeting. Is that part of the problem? Yeah, it is because again, it's it's cost, not value. It's not that you don't want to work on CAC and over time you get better and better and sharper and sharper and, and lower your CAC. But if your LTV is good enough, I don't really care about CAC. So I really want to understand how sticky my stuff is and then I'm going to invest to whatever level I need to be able to, to achieve that LTV. And then and only then do I start to hack back at the, at the cost problem. But if you start with cost first, then you, you, you tie one hand behind your back. Does that make sense? It does. Absolutely. It's a really interesting perspective on that too, because it's making sure you don't put the cart before the horse. It's basically saying, let's, let's reverse engineer success instead of forward engineering and hoping we get to success. You know, I wanted to circle back also to a concept that you mentioned, I think twice earlier, you, you talked about role corruption. Mm-hmm. And I think some of our listeners might not be that familiar with that term or know what you mean by that. So can you tell a little bit about what you mean by role corruption and, and how it plays into this conversation? Yeah, it's asking somebody to do two or more things 
that are at least some somewhat in conflict, either because the the sort of success factors conflict or because it requires such a different mindset that it's impossible to for most human beings to be able to 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 context switch back and forth. I'll give you a classic example. A player coach, which for some businesses, you go through the idiot stage, the barbarian stage and whatever, and you kind of feel like you got no choice and maybe you do, but it is a terrible place that you want to get out of as soon as you can, because the, the, the competency profile and the mindset of a manager and that of a full cycle sales rep is very different which is also why you when you just kick people blindly upstairs from a sales rep role to a manager you have so much mediocrity and failure there. So I think the same the same thing goes I hear people say hey we're going to have our SDRs close you know be full cycle sales reps. Then they're really inside sales people who are prospectors, they're not SDRs. So uncorrupt them and understand which propositions are which and you're setting SDRs after this proposition and inside salespeople, full, full cycle inside salespeople after the others. So it's almost like we never learned the lesson with, you know, kind of full cycle reps, which is, hey, go spend some of your time prospecting and then some of your time closing and then some of your time negotiating and some of your time account managing and some of your, like, before you know it, like, where does anyone gravitate towards? It's a really good point. And, and if you think about it, if you take this to its logical extreme, and we'll find the boundary conditions, but if, if I am a sales leader and I'm thinking about division of labor and excellence and things like that, prospecting is a fundamentally different thing than pursuing the rest of the sales process. And why wouldn't I, especially if they're less expensive, but even if it were par, why wouldn't I want from a division of labor perspective, people who were killer prospectors, and then people who had all the other soft and hard skills to go through the rest of the sales process. And why would I feel like I need to put them together? The implication is that you got to have your coverage model so that if you think about opportunity management from when something is a bona fide opportunity through the prospecting phase into where it's where it's now time to actually have a sales rep start to, in, to invest sales cycles when the buyer is in the market qualified. Assuming that you can cover the, the market opportunity, you should be trying to purify your roles. You should be trying to add more and more and more SDRs to the point where they're handling 100% of the prospecting load and to as close to the boundary conditions as possible, given your need to cover all of your market opportunity, that you've got your reps spending as much time over the actual fish fishing you know, as opposed to baiting the hooks and going to buy the worms and, uh, you know, all that kind of stuff that you could have SDRs do. You know, we had a client and I won't name names, but they came to us at one point and basically said exactly what you're saying. They said, look, we have sales reps and this was a big space. They said, um, who are making seven figures a year. You know, these, these sales reps, they do extremely well. They work with very large enterprise clients. And so we said, what do you want them doing? What do you want us doing? And they said, we just want them talking to clients. That's right. it. Or prospects. We The only thing we ever want them doing is selling. And they did exceptionally well. I mean, not just with science, but in general, you know, they started segmenting out these other things and supporting salespeople. And they would get the question all the time. How are you, how could you afford to set, uh, to pay your salespeople so much? And they said, because all they do is close. We, we support them with everything else. They don't do admin work. They don't prospect. They don't set meetings. They just go close giant deals all day. And you get this attitude in so many enterprises where it's like you ought to suffer some, you know, especially today when we see the talent wars going on, being easy to sell for 
is a huge benefit, is a huge competitive advantage. So why wouldn't you want to be easy to sell for? Why why do you have to have people suffer? You know, I mean, there's an old Monty Python parody that was like, I've suffered for my music. Now it's your turn, you know? And, and so that's just, that's just dumb. Think about putting people into positions where they can be maximally successful with the narrowest set of competencies required so that you can cast the, the, the net most easily and catch as many of them as you can that you need there. The broader your competency set that you need for somebody to be successful, the more rare that species is, the more it costs and the more fraught with failure risk it is. Well, you know, it's funny. I think that one of the reasons for that, you know, ought to suffer some mentality exists is that probably the biggest criticism I could level against any salesperson is, oh, they're just an order taker, right? Like, oh, this is, you know, this is an easy sale, right? Like I even saw the, your, the look on your face when I, when I dropped that line, which yeah. indicates to me that you, you've heard it before. <laughs> and I'd love to get your thoughts on, on, on that kind of like counterpoint, if you will. So this we get this all the time from sales leaders whose CEOs, you know, sales CEOs are either product CEOs or they're finance CEOs or maybe ops people. Rarely sales and marketing leaders. I don't know what the numbers are now, but outside of Chuck Robbins at Cisco, there aren't many grown-up salespeople as CEOs. And so this is the classic the product sells itself mentality. Right. You know, sales leaders run up against that because their CEOs are often grown up product guys, especially in tech. Otherwise, they're finance people or ops people. And so, yeah, you got to get over that mentality. There's virtually nothing that really sells itself. So you've really got to have the right skill set that's required. And again, the, what, it, what makes it easier? If you make the, the salespeople or the SDRs figure out what the heck the buyer cares about, you're asking for lots and lots of skin knees and slow process and you know missed opportunities. So yeah, I think you, you, you've got to do that sequence of things right to arm first SDRs and then salespeople with all the things that make that it quote unquote easy or easier. Well, and it's funny too, because the, the thing that always gets me is in our business, especially top of the funnel, we're always looking for formulas. And formulas would indicate that, that a lot of thought went in, a lot of trial and error went in to the experiments that we ran. And out of that, we pulled, you know, kind of like the most correct hypothesis of A, what the buyer or the prospect would care most about, B, how to talk to them and overcome some of their leading objections, C, like how to basically frame up where it's as friction-free as possible for them to lean in and learn more and go on a sales journey with your organization, thus making it easy, Yeah. right? Like, yeah. isn't that the whole point? Right. It's, it's really about removing the obstacles. It's providing clarity. I mean, if you think about it, the average buyer is inexpert. They don't buy for a living. So when they buy something, it's hard enough for them to decide what the heck the problem is. And then, you know, and we see this in sales tech all the time and in, in, in MarTech, you know, people know how to buy software. So they buy software and, they, and, and people know how to sell it. And so it's like they plug it in and expect the problems to be solved, but they haven't done the process and people work that has to be done to make the technology amplify the effect of going from current state to future state. So, yeah, I think that I think we, you know, we're going to see that over time, it is homing in on the problem and is understanding what are the obstacles between the, the vision of the current state and the future state and understanding that that buyer doesn't do this for a living. 
And so it's our job to be expert in the problem and the solution approaches and therefore the capabilities. And even down to things like if they need process change to make our software product, you know, really deliver the goods, we or our partners or whatever need to be good at addressing all of those people and process elements as well, not just the what the widgets do. No, it's really funny too. One of the things that I would just jump in to say here that that I've observed in my career watching SDRs, the most successful of them actually trade on the unfair advantage that you just kind of brought up, which is this. Pretend that that somebody is prospecting to myself, a CMO, right? Someone who's been on the buy side for many, many, many years. The unfair advantage that the SDR has in that circumstance is that they get to talk to SD, they get to talk to CMOs every single day, as opposed to the CMO that's looking at a product or solution that maybe they're looking at once every 18 months or less, or wasn't even considering the product, the problem space, to use your words framed up in the exact way that now, you know, kind of a cold outreach has brought to to the fore. And here's the thing, most professionals, most executives really do care whether they choose to admit it or not, what their peers are, are doing, thinking, feeling, acting on, afraid of. Though that FOMO is real. I couldn't agree more. And I'll I'll pile on that one by saying that something that's way underused is what I call voice of the customer. Any statement that you have to make, and you can say, you know, 62% of statistics are made up, but, you know, you go ahead and say to your customer, what we're hearing from our, this, our CMO clients is that A, B, and C are the biggest thing, pains for them right now. How does that accord with your view of the world and what you're dealing with? If you go out and say, we know that, whatever, whatever, you're a vendor. If you use the voice of the customer, and it doesn't matter really if it's true, as long as it's plausible and they can't disprove it, you're going you're gonna to get through the gate of, oh yeah, says who? What's funny is it also makes them way less defensive because you know when you come over and say, hey, I want to let you know, Mr. CMO, your marketing team is terrible and your marketing efforts are bad and your SLAs are all high. They're not usually super excited to indict you over to dinner. So when you can come forward and say, you know, all the other marketing's out, marketers out there, they're having issues with A and B and C, and they've been solving problems in some new ways we'd love to show you. Yeah. Does that sound familiar? It gives someone permission. This is something I've learned from Eric, frankly. It gives somebody permission to say, yes, that's a problem without feeling like they're pointing a finger at themselves and saying, you should probably fire me. So in our consulting business, and in our advisory business, we deal with this all the time because somebody's had the humility to say, I don't actually know everything under the sun. And of course, the trick is no one does. The breadth and depth of go-to-market strategy is such that there isn't a single person I've ever met, including me, that's an expert at everything. And so somebody has had the humility either to hire a consulting firm because size of prize meets need, need for speed and capability gaps, or they go into an advisory because they want to do it themselves, but with experts to help them make it go faster, likely to go better, and mostly to get a better outcome. But early on, I know I've had conversations with them that says, listen, you've hired us and we're going to do discovery and whatever. We're going to come back to you with a bunch of findings. And you've got two choices. You can beat yourself up because this sucks and this sucks and this isn't good and that's not best practice and whatever. Or you can instead say, we're smart. We've hired outside help to help us go even better and faster. 
and celebrate the fact that you're doing this well and celebrate the fact that look at all this other opportunity we have. One of them is more, one of them is more pleasant than the other. What are you going to choose? And you literally need to have this conversation with people. I love Definitely that. more pleasant for your uh, employees. That's for sure. When they, when they can feel that coming down from leadership, that, that positive, nothing's ever, it, nothing's ever perfect. You're never going to get there, but you should keep striving for it. So love that approach. And you know, one other thing I wanted to share two quotes of yours that, that got us thinking being an expert is really important, but first we need to get their attention, right? We, we've got to get them willing to talk to us in the first place. And you've said two things. One is about being different in a way that buyers value, not forcing intimacy. And another, and this is something I still write off your LinkedIn profile, is, I love this quote, recognize that common practice represents mediocrity. Yep. And so combining those two things, there are so many people out there, either SDRs or salespeople, they're sending emails, they're making phone calls, they're not all good. There's robots doing it now. How do you stand out from the noise? How do you do it differently when you're also that, you know, you're an SDR, you've got phone calls to make, you've got your boss telling you to hit your numbers, you've got pitches to, to put out there. How do you stand out? How do you be creative and different? The first thing you do is addition by subtraction. Stop doing what the other 17 robots are going to do. Surprise them by not doing. I'll give you a great example. I think organizations constantly forced it, force intimacy. You have immediately, can I get 10 minutes on your calendar? No, you cannot. If I go out on a date with somebody and I jump into their lap on the first 10 minutes, I'm usually not getting, I'm just not handsome enough and, or, or whatever I would need to be enough to have that be welcome. And plus, if they did welcome, it would probably be pretty yucky and creepy anyway. But the, the point is, you have to build a relationship brick by brick. And what you're looking for over time, if you're in the right accounts and you're on the right, the right personas and, the, and, and multiple, to really understand what the buying group looks like and how to motivate all of them together. And you approach them appropriately because you've got good product market fit, which is evidenced by your ability to really get to insightful conversations about the problems. You know, if you do all that, you nevertheless have to be able to lay some of that out when they're willing to pay attention, when they're in the market, and even when they're not in the market. And that's why marketing is so important to complement the actual human execution of SDR, because if they're not in the market right now, you're going to put them, if you're in the right accounts and on the right personas, you're not quitting on them because they're going to go in the market at some point. And we want to build this bow wave of opportunities that we're going to generate. And we just most of the time don't have a, a compelling enough proposition to make somebody go, I got to go in the market for this right now. So we want to play the long game. And so playing, you know, the, and the funny thing is the best way to win the long game is the same as the best way to win the short game. Mm -hmm. So, so, so true. You know, what's funny too. I think the, the people have tried to run stats on this this could be the same malarkey that you were quoting earlier. But, you know, I think it actually does stand to reason that no more than 4% of any cohort is in market as a buyer at any given time. And right. if that set is anywhere even remotely close to true, then the skills that really pay the bills are how do I develop conversations? How do I start them, especially by persona? Isn't that the case? It is. And there needs to be a thread that is common amongst all of the personas 
because otherwise they won't act together or a confused and and a confused and discordant team tends to devolve to either doing nothing or buying the absolute lowest common denominator so you got to find that thread but then you've got to get to the individual level when you're dealing with the individual so when you look at this kind of an issue where you're you're trying to orchestrate serendipity you're finding people at the right time do you think that's why there, there's been such a strong rise in intent data and intent tools and things like that? And do you think that's the future of where this is going? I do think that there's all kinds of things where somebody's grasping for the magic bullet. And I mean, I think intent data and you know intent signals are important. But I also think that you know we've tended to think in single persona and lead terms instead of thinking in terms of, of an organizational movement of a group of people who've come together who may not even be a natural cohort and they've kind of come together because they all have a common problem and ultimately if everything goes right they're going to buy our whether it's technology or service or whatever as a means for solving that problem and again moving from current state to a more desirable and financially rewarding future state yeah i think that this is one of the, the the fundamental tenets of prospecting that's rarely talked about. And that is how do you kind of like plant your flag or open up to use a, a bad war analogy, but open up war on multiple fronts with buyers that oftentimes are not going to talk naturally themselves. You know, a buying group doesn't come together superpowers like and, you know, form of an ice <laughs> sculpture, you know, form of whatever, that it, it really is ad hoc and each buying situation is different. As such, wouldn't that dictate that most prospecting scenarios need to be really kind of like calibrated or forethought or, you know, a lot more rigor put in than just, hey, I'm going to go call one person at a time at an organization. Right. I think that's, I think that's absolutely right. And you mentioned something before that dovetails with that, which is, you're, you know, if you're talking to CMOs all the time, you know, you have repetition. So, you know, good practice times, you know, repetition times frequency equals mastery. And so anytime that you can have that in play, you want to do that, which means that that's how you, you should think about how you're deploying your campaigns and programs. And then when you think about something at the account level and the buying decision team level, where you're building your sequences, not by individual persona, but you're starting to build them by, I'm going to run this at an entire buying decision team. So I want to have as few individual personas, but as, as broad a buying decision team as possible and orchestrating that with your sales engagement software and, you know, building the right, building the right content assets for that and all of the other, all the other tactics that you're going to deploy across the, the various engagement modalities. You know, there's one more topic that we wanted to cover that's a little bit different from the ones we've talked about so far. You know, there's a lot of things that we've talked about that are hard work and different things that SDRs can do, SDR leaders. But let's not get ourselves. It's a grind. It's, it's, a, it's a tough job. You've got to be consistent and grind it out. But you also talk about the fun side of things. You talk about how important humor is and you talk about how important it is to have the right just environment in general for SDRs. So, how do you cultivate a, a, a fun working environment for SDRs? And, and also, what is the role of humor in sales development? We, we've all seen great, funny prospecting emails. I think a lot of us have. We've also seen some, some not so funny attempts at humor in, in sales emails and sales development. So where is the right place for it? Well, again, I think it goes back to as long as you're focused on, on what they care about, 
if you've got something that's quirky, again, stand out. You're you're being different in a way that somebody doesn't object to. Um, you know, somebody somebody can value. I, I literally was in a consulting project a number of years ago. I uh, was helping uh, SDRs, you know, with some approach tactics and whatever. And we were talking about writing email subject lines. And I was using as an extreme example a subject line that says, "I haven't bitten anybody all day." Well, an SDR literally used that and bang, got somebody, LOL, I, I, I never respond to these sorts of things, but that was so funny, I had to open it. And then of course, what happened was once she got the open, she had the good body content, the little snackable and the right call to action, a high value piece of content and magic. So it, you know, being the authentic you is the number one thing. Don't be a, don't be an automaton. I'll, I'll never forget. This has become overused over time because any trend becomes overused over time in sales development. But I remember a few years ago, I believe it was Rachel May who works for Keenan and Gap Selling and all that had, had gone over an email that was working really well. And I forget the exact subject line, but the tone of it was basically, I've been prospecting you for a while. I don't think we're going to talk. Wanted to show you what our conversation would have looked like. You would have said this. I would have said this. You would have given this objection. And it was shortened to the point. I mean, little, you know, eight words, next line, eight words, next line. The response rate that she got off of that email, to your point, it was different. It got people's attention, got a little bit of a chuckle. And throughout the whole conversation was funny. It was, it was a very human, personal conversation. I mean, I would have responded. I know a lot of other people did. I just didn't get the email. Uh, so yeah. to your point, it really stands out when everyone else is doing the same exact messaging every time. <laughs> yeah, you're, you're right, Harry. And it, it, that gets back to that. That even connects to the idea of what that amounts is to is, quote unquote, a breakup email. Again, we talk about all the little fallacies and all the, all the little mistakes that get made. You never send a breakup email. You signal that you're going to politely retire from the field because it, it's apparent that this isn't high priority for you right now. So I'll check back with you in a couple of months. And But with something like that, when, it, when they really were in the market or needing to go in the market, you'll get a much higher response rate at that point. And you won't have done the annoying breakup email. You'll have done something that shows your, you have some sort of EQ about you. And you actually were being respectful of their time. You know, so I think, again, how you do something matters way more than that you do it. I've always wondered about that phraseology, and I've never particularly preferred it. A breakup email would have required somebody actually going out for a breakup <laughs> to occur. <laughs> that's true. That's kind, of, that's, kind of, uh, that's kind of an egotistical view of the world, isn't it? Well, and if you wanted to... to Continue to lay, uh, you know, tar at <laughs> at the feet of people. That's exactly it with with most sellers, right? Like that, that it is all me, me, me. It is yeah. all about them. It's all about, hey, can you do this for me? Hey, can you know, like I want to do this, or I want, or I I need as a seller. Which boy, it just there's something about being on the buy side for a long time that you have, you develop an allergy to that exact kind of those talk tracks. I agree. The the I want, we want, I, you know, customers, we have to deal with this. Customers yeah. don't care what we want. They don't care about us. They don't care about our company or whatever. Until and unless they can connect the dots, it's like, wow, these people might actually be able to help me do something I do care about. 
Yeah. Yeah. Big pet fee- big pet peeve is the I'm wondering, I'm curious, I'm hoping messaging and emails because yeah. that's the natural human response is I don't care. Who are you? <laughs> I don't care. You know, we're getting near the end of our time. And I think we could probably talk for three or four hours about the kind of, these are really just high level best practices for how to approach people in the first place. It goes back to, to Dale Carnegie and all those other concepts behind it. Just how do we communicate with humans? Before we wrap up, wanted to give you a couple minutes to, to let people know where they can find you and, and learn more from you. You've done so many interesting different things and worked in interesting groups. So if our listeners want to learn more or reach out to you for a variety of reasons, what's the best way to do so? Well, thanks. I work for SBI Growth Advisory, and we have been historically a boutique management consulting firm specializing in sales and marketing. And recently, I rejoined the firm. I used to used to be here as a consultant because I was working as an independent executive advisor, and our ideas meshed so well. And their proposition they wanted to build for a an augmented do-it-yourself sort of growth advisory that we call Growth Accelerator. Uh, so I'm I came back to help build it. And so at this at this time we serve chief revenue officers and chief sales officers and in the net sort of natural human motion of I want to do it myself, but I'm looking for expert help. And so we think we've built something differentiated. We are practitioners, not analysts. And so we are going to apply and merchandise all of the assets of the consulting firm on behalf of our clients who are largely doing in, you know, do it yourself mode. Boy, and our listenership would be really wise to take you up on that offer because I'm hard pressed to think of more brilliant minds kind of collected together than than SBI. Well, hopefully, if that's true or even if it's close to true, we also are blessed with some level of humility. Um, <laughs> and in fact, the sort of the culture of the firm is that you know customer intimacy and and whatnot is really the the core of what we do. So we want to feel different than working with typical consulting firms or typical academic sort of advisory firms. You know, you're gonna like working with us is sort of the the ethos that we're going for. Love that. And I think a lot of the people we work with as well would, would benefit a lot from those conversations. You know, so many vendors out there also, the actual salespeople who are listening to this are asked to be that level of consultant for their clients for a variety of reasons, whatever they're selling. And those are people that should also be thinking about the groups like SBI out there that can actually play that role. And, and to your point earlier, have done this exact thing year after year with the same types of people. So it's another uh, another group that should be looking at what SBI is doing or the actual the vendors, the salespeople that are playing consultant because they have to. That said, really appreciate all your time today. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you on behalf of the listeners. And we, we're excited to see what you do next. I really enjoyed it. Thanks for having me. Thanks, Kevin.